Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. Today we have a special episode with our CEO, Piotr Niedzwicz. Every couple of months, Piotr dives into a one-on-one discussion with an expert practitioner doing machine learning in production. Tune in for a no-fluff, in-depth MLOps conversation. Okay, guys, so today we have an outlier, definitely. LinkedIn outlier, <laughs> MLOps engineer outlier. Why is that outlier? I remember like seven months ago, it would be hard to find you on LinkedIn. Today, if I am following you and if somebody following you, most of the days you will find colorful diagrams explaining different components and setups around MLOps. And they are not only like they're written in a, they are explained in a nice way. At the same time, I would say they're pretty deep technically and correct technically. It is what I like. Can you tell us to those who are not following you yet, what's your background and how you became one of the, if not the most active and followed MLOps person on LinkedIn? Okay, let me give it a try. So first of all, thank you for having me here and definitely thank you for your kind words. <laughs> so it definitely means a lot to me. So yeah, as you mentioned, uh, seven months ago, I wasn't definitely was not known on LinkedIn. And I think that uh, even three months ago, probably not that much, but uh, it changed a little bit and very quickly. But maybe let's get back to that a little bit uh, later and I'll just give a short intro to who I am and what my background is. So, yep, I have tried a lot of hats in my career. Most of my hats were data related. So I have been a data analyst. I have been a data scientist. I have been data engineer, machine learning engineer, cloud engineer. I was leading teams of cloud engineers, machine learning engineers, and uh, data engineers. And now in my final role, I am actually an MLOps engineer. So probably different people would think about different things, things about what an MLOps engineer is, but maybe we'll touch uh, something about that later on today. Yeah, and then actually only seven months ago, as you mentioned, I also started creating content. I haven't written anything on LinkedIn before that, apart from some regular posts about, for example, an IPO of one company that I was working for. (laughs) And yeah, I started off as, I didn't really have a concrete plan of what I want to write about. I knew that it was most likely to be about MLOps because I was doing it back then and uh, I really love the concept and all of the, not only technical stuff, but also leadership stuff. So team management and how teams should look like in an organization for it to function efficiently. So actually I started writing about that and not the technical stuff. So I was started this, I started writing about uh, what is an MLOps team? What is an MLOps platform team? Why do we even need one of those? And what does it mean in a broader context of a company? It was pretty successful, I would say. I was also drawing some diagrams about that. So if you would scroll the history of my post to six months ago, you would see some very amateur drawings of uh, circles with team names around them <laughs> connecting. But yeah, then eventually I grew my following a little bit. Then I started uh, writing a little bit more technical things. And then one day, some of the posts just started hitting lots Do of you likes. remember what was the, what was the post? That they, you know, the breakthrough post. It wasn't uh, one single post, probably two or three almost in the row. 
Yeah, actually, it was a little bit weird because the first one, if I believe so, no, no, I would be lying if I would say that the first ones who would that would start uh, hitting more likes were diagrams around the full life cycle of data up until from data generation till the deployment to production. Deployment of production of data or model? No, no, the model. So it would start at the raw data ingestion. It would end up uh, at uh, deployment of a model and then monitoring systems connected to it as well. You wouldn't see those now in my feed. Yeah, there are more zoom in, right? There are more, yeah. But I had this one template on which I, which I would recycle and then I would dig deeper into each of the components of it. So these ones were the ones that would hit a little bit, like mm -hmm. uh, 100 likes or whatever, which is already quite uh, a lot. <laughs> but uh, then at one point in time, I just decided to put part of my, uh, what I post on LinkedIn into a newsletter. And I had to come up with a template of my post picture. <laughs> so I would uh, basically put everything uh, that I talk about into the same template, very similar, similar template, explaining diff different things. And those first two posts actually, uh, I wouldn't say exploded, but they definitely were better than previous ones. So up until uh, 500 likes or even 700. Then I did that for a few weeks until some of them started hitting uh, one and a half thousand. Uh, eventually, a few of them did hit 2.5 thousand. And I was very lucky because I never went viral. So 2.5 thousand to me is not yet viral, right? It's still the amount of... You're organically growing, right? Yes. I think it is healthy thing. It is something that is an indicator that you are doing something right. Not just one lucky event, I would say. Maybe I can't say for sure, but hopefully so. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the following continued to grow and now I am where I am. I'm really happy about that and I really love what I do. So. And Arimas, well, talking like getting back to your background, you've been leading different types of teams and in particular, you've been leading data platform team. Yes. How would you make a border between data platform team and MLOps let's call it ML platform, MLOps platform team. Firstly, how are they different? And why do we even need MLOps platform team if we had data platform team? I wouldn't necessarily draw a distinct line between these two. There are two separate things. One of them is ML platform. Another one is data platform. Data platform is usually targeted mostly towards data engineers and analytical engineers and analysts. So mm -hmm. it, it would include the uh, everything starting from orchestration for data engineering ETL flows till actually database management, so data warehouse management, till the BI tooling, which then are mounted on top of uh, data warehouses uh, so that you can display your data in nice graphs to business people. So that's a data platform. Then it comes to um, ML platform, is uh, it is more targeted towards frameworks and uh, tooling that machine learning engineers use day-to-day -day, or data scientists use day-to-day -to, -day to implement the MLOps workflow end-to-end. -end. It usually does not uh, involve anything which would allow the practitioner to display his results. You would use probably BI tooling for that. Mm -hmm. But then again, when it comes to team structure, I wouldn't say that uh, it necessarily has to be a different team, a separate team, but the platforms that the team manages are different. Naturally, once a team, another team, but a company grows, it is uh, natural to split these because uh, the needs outgrow the size of a single team 
that could deliver, a single theme could deliver. And eventually also a skill set is a little bit different, right? So usually data platform engineers will be either data engineers who went and became cloud engineers or cloud engineers who want to meddle with data a little bit more. And it comes to machine learning engineers, then definitely those people need to know at least a little bit about machine learning to do what we do, but uh, not always be uh, super experts in it. Uh, and so, so maybe it's just uh, one more thought. In, so usually how a startups grow or new companies grow is that uh, they do not start with machine learning. So they start with analytics because this is what uh, management needs to understand their, its business and uh, maybe do some decisions on the data that we see saw historically without necessarily doing any... I wouldn't fully agree that it happens in early startups. <laughs> but yeah, it depends, of course. But uh, in tech startups, uh, yeah, like I'm biased, right? I've been always around tech startups and management was technical. And yeah, especially, maybe it's going to change, but especially in the last years, some of the startups, sometimes we were meeting such startups among our users or customers. They are called, they call themselves AI first startups, right? So they are starting having like particular models in mind as a core of their product. But of course, yeah, I would definitely agree in that when it comes to more product companies, not so focused on AI, then very often, yeah, you're right. There are different types of companies. Uh, yes, for sure. I was mostly talking about maybe e-commerce who is just starting out. So you build out the software which uh, hosts your website. And then you sometimes even you treat, would treat an analyst as an afterthought, which is not good. But <laughs> machine learning engineers come even after that, right? So you would design your system uh, for analytics purposes. And at least that's what I've uh, seen in my career. And then... Uh, Naturally, data platform team would be the first one to form. And even though like ideas around machine learning are starting in a company, what kind of data products you could deploy to production to improve your revenue streams, uh, but then it also makes sense for a data platform team to also take in that load as well initially until it grows to the size where you need to split. That's what I would think the process should look like. And Arimas, when do you think like, from your experience and what you've seen, when it makes sense to start thinking about data platform team or ML platform team, it sounds like platform sounds like something that should serve many people, right? Yes. What is the right time to consider it? Yeah, so I'm actually a fan of uh, team topologies. Probably lots of listeners might know this. So it's a kind of popular book and it draws, it creates a theory around how a company team structure should be implemented for a fastest possible flow. And it says that there should be four types of teams, a platform team, a streamlined team, enablement team, and a complicated subsystem team. But in there, they also explain why you need a platform team. And the main purpose of it is reduction of cognitive load on streamlined teams. And streamlined teams are what... Uh, people would usually call a functional team, meaning that it has all of the people that they need to actually roll out the entirety of their product or part of the product that they are responsible for without additional interactions with our team. And naturally, once again, as a new company, you would start as a single team. Probably you would have a few backend engineers. You would have a designer, a front-end engineer, maybe probably an ops person 
and uh, hopefully a data person from the very beginning, but uh, usually, that, <laughs> okay, not from the very beginning, but as uh, soon as you start uh, generating data assets for analytics, I would say hire a data person. Okay, so let's say we have such a team, there are 20 people. How big we need to get? Start thinking about data platform team or ML platform team. So for data platform team, I would say that you still need to at least have that first initial team split into... It will eventually split into two teams that's responsible for different parts of the product and eventually into three teams. So I would say once you have three teams, start considering it. So start pulling all of the ideas, all of the common things that those three teams are using and having and put them into the platform team. And the best way probably to do that would also be to take a person or two from those already existing teams and make them the core of data platform team and not hire someone from outside. Maybe one person from outside plus two that are already in the streamlined teams. And when it comes to ML platform teams, the same rules applies or? Yes, but naturally this would not be so soon in the life cycle of the company, but streamlined teams should eventually also have a machine learning engineer or a data scientist in those teams. So eventually they will build their own mini platforms inside of teams that's unavoidable and that's also the biggest we see it we see it very often that's also the one of the biggest uh, problems that uh, mlops platforms try to solve they want to normalize everything and don't allow teams to diverge too much of course there will be divergence because there will be specific needs per team but hopefully only very little <laughs> so looking from okay assuming there is the needs and following those rules for data platform team and MLOps or ML platform team, what I should, what other teams like streamlined teams should expect to get from data platform team and from ML platform team? So data platform and ML platform teams both provide the same thing, but to different stakeholders. And that thing is a framework and to a platform to work against so that we can um, implement their day-to-day and then life cycles more easily. What that thing that they get is definitely different <laughs> between the companies, but let's say you're given the machine learning platform team, that could be a framework in a form of, let's say, template repositories. This is a very popular way of implementing MLOps frameworks. So you prepare a repository template that a team can then pull and work in it and it would have very specifically defined where certain elements of your code should go into and how git interactions work and how those git interactions what do they create in a cicd life cycle and what are your expected outputs and arimas when you set a template here Mm -hmm. in this context what the template is is it a document in Notion Confluence? Is it a usually it would be exactly a Git repository and not not a single one. Usually it will be a repository per specific model deployment type. Even so, if you would have let's say deployment of, as a REST API, would have deployment as a stream application or a batch application, that would be most likely three separate repositories, GitHub repositories, which do not have anything functional like business specific, it only has boilerplate code, which is a framework, which you when implement, you can expect certain specific actions happen. And once you trigger those actions, then also MLOps platform team create all of the workflows that 
should happen for this model to actually end up in production without any additional interaction from a product team, which is ML, not ML team, but streamlined team who has either ML engineers or data scientists in them who use that template. Just an example, there are more ways to implement it, but this is one of the most popular ones. Even AWS itself has a very nice blog post around it. Not a blog post around it, but I don't remember which company implemented it, but it defined in detail that we had a lot of templates. And uh, basically a job of MLOps engineer would be just to increase the scope of those templates, create more templates, because we had so many use cases, different use cases in the company. Okay, and those templates to work, I guess they need other tools, services to be around, right? Yes. And I remember we had the discussion before before this recording, and I mentioned, I, I wrote an article about where I said that we should think about MLOps as an extension to DevOps, is what I wrote. Some people like it, some people really didn't like it. I think it's usually good <laughs> when <laughs> there is some level of debate. Anyway, I ask you what you think about, where do you think DevOps stack, DevOps engineers, where are they in this picture? We talk about data platform team and data platform stack templates, MLOps team stack. Mm -hmm. Those models eventually, if we are talking about models that are on production, they are around products, usually software products. Software products, most of the time, are managed by DevOps, by ops teams. How do you see those teams collaborate? And when it comes to tech stack, where do you see what we are missing if we look at the typical DevOps stack? DevOps stacks are pretty much standardized. Of course, different vendors, but I would say it's way more mature market than MLOps. Sure. So first of all, I love your definition of it. Like definitely MLOps is an extension of DevOps. And if you would also scroll in my posts to seven months ago, it was the post which went out my the very first week I started posting. And it had this uh, diagram where I just placed the DevOps and then extended it a little bit and I called it MLOps. And it uh, was one of my first the semi-viral posts because I had then just 1,200 followers and it reached 220 likes, I think. So it was huge at that point. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't see it because, yeah, like... It's seven months ago. <laughs> yeah. But I was drawing similar, I get like based on your description, similar diagram during one of the BOD board of director meetings of Neptune where I was asked, okay, like, Piotr, what do you mean by extension of devils? But maybe... You were first with this idea then. Ah, no, 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 definitely not. Probably you were uh, brewing it in your head for the last, I don't know, five years, because uh, that's how long Neptune, I think, exists, right? Around five years now. So like four, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially, yes. So everything that comes to development side, the, the development deployment side, to me, it's just pure, I wouldn't call it even DevOps, it's just the software engine. Yeah, it's DevOps, but not necessarily including DevOps engineers, because that is also a biggest term. So every DevOps practice can be applied to MLOps when it comes to deployment. Machine learning applications, however, are a little bit harder to monitor in production because while you also need to monitor everything that you would need for a standard software application, you need to monitor additional things which are not deterministic, which basically is the usually distribution changes of the data that are coming into the models that you haven't seen before, right? So this is called feature drift. 
it could also be eventually a concept route, but it's probably not for this meeting to discuss. So this part is clear. Then you need to attach additional things like training pipelines, which, well, naturally, they are not part of DevOps because software engineers don't do that, <laughs> right? But yes, like I would say, yeah, like we software engineers don't train software, right? But they build software and they test software. They are doing unit tests, they are doing end-to-end tests. So it should be deterministic. It's not always, but yeah, I see some level of analogy, but in details they are different. But still, most of MLOps, not MLOps, but uh, machine learning pipeline concepts could be directly translated into how DevOps works, standard practices work, right? For example, machine learning pipeline is just an artifact. The pipeline itself is deterministic. Only the data that is coming into the model is not. So you can test. If we said seats fixed for for random generators, right? Yes. So for training, yes. For deployment, not anymore because random data is coming in. So no seat uh, will help you there. But uh, the pipeline itself, it's just pure code, usually, most of the frameworks. And you can unit test it. You can integrate, test it. So you can make sure that it works. It's a little bit more complicated when it comes to like benchmarking different models against each other, right? So looking from the tech stack and comparing MLOps to DevOps, what we are really missing? You mentioned models on production are harder to monitor than software running on production because there is a super set of things you need to monitor, right? You need to monitor what you monitor for software plus data-related, drift-related concepts. What else is missing? There's a lot of data quality checks happening before the model is trained as well, not only after the predictions are being made. Definitely a term called data profiling is probably not what you would find in the general software engineering, which is probably one thing. Another thing that these pipelines that are machine learning pipelines, they are more related, I would say, to data engineering rather than software engineering, because that's also what software engineers usually don't do. Of course, there is, I would say that, yeah, experiment tracking is yet another thing, right? Because I had never seen software engineer even uh, talk about these concepts. I would like to say that feature stores are something that is specific to machine learning, but I wouldn't probably because to me, it's also a little bit, to me, it's data engineer, right? Because we have been doing feature stores before MLOps movement. Right. It's just a key value store with a specific API face before it, right? So, so what is so different? Why we cannot have let's use MongoDB as feature store or but we are using it underneath. Like I didn't see anyone use Mongo yet, but could definitely be implementation detail. <laughs> People are using DynamoDB Redis for that, right? So how a feature store systems themselves improve the experience of a user is first of all they make features shareable and discoverable. Second, they ensure that you only do feature engineering once. So you don't need to do it again once you fetch data from, for example, online feature store, which is very important as the data comes in, either in stream form or batch form, you apply the feature engineering once, and then you expose that data to all of the users. It can't happen anywhere else, because if it does, you can't avoid training serving SKU it's impossible, then, yeah, and to be honest, probably that's mostly it. And it doesn't solve many more problems, but these problems are so critical and so 
important to business that it's worth investing in this system and it has to be stable because and when it's stable it can't have downtimes for example so managing something yourself would be very problematic and that's it so it's estimated that feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30 second pitch of neptune ai okay so we help with model metadata storage and management that means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app you can organize and display it however you want search debug and compare experiments data sets and models save your production ready models to a centralized registry and collaborate on your projects across the org oh and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack just plug us right in for more go to neptune.ai or check our docs they're pretty good i wrote them hope that was 30 seconds back to the show for you to create uh, not necessarily estimated but we had some estimations in my previous companies that we also were thinking should we build our own or should we buy something so building your own would take i don't know a year plus probably for two very senior engineers and it would just cover probably basic needs of yours if you want to enable cataloging of features, discoverability, that's yet another metadata layer, which wouldn't probably be even in the plans for that in-house built feature store. So talking about feature stores and the relation to data set management, mm -hmm. when I am talking with our users, customers, we, from time to, I would say even often, I am asked, okay, what would be my recommendation when it comes to data versioning? And it's something that I ask you about, how data versioning, how is it related with feature stores? Like if we compare, for instance, I think that when you say data versioning in MLOP space, people would say DVC mm -hmm. as a, like it is the first thing that comes to mind. How do you compare those two? Well, data versioning is uh, actually <laughs> neither data science nor machine learning term, right? Data versioning was done for countless of years in data engineering world. So there are also different tools that could be used without feature stores and DVC to version data. A very good example would be just using Delta Lake, right? Because it's just a metadata layer on top of your data in some object storage, which allows you to time travel, for example, to a specific snapshot of the data. Then comparing feature stores to DVC, these, these are completely different concepts that also don't necessarily integrate with each other. So DVC was created uh, for data scientists to, so that we wouldn't need to implement something that it does themselves, which is basically pointing to a specific data set in a specific storage in a specific branch on Git, right? So we chose Git to, for this implementation. And to some extent also being able to replicate or understand how it was created, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are... But you could do it, uh, not necessarily the creation part yourself, but uh, let's say the versioning, you could do it very easily, right? You would have have a YAML file in your Git, which would point to a specific S3 location. And in a specific branch, you would have different configuration files. So that's already kind of data versioning for you, right? So, but what DVC wants to do is to normalize how it's done, right? Because lots of people are doing it in different ways. When it comes to features... Yeah, like when you compare it to feature store, if I had feature store, how it would work now? Like data... So feature store, it doesn't provide this... DVC functionality out of the box, but it provides feature versioning in data engineering way, I would say. So usually what you would do with a feature store, you would query batch data sets for training, right? And you want to version that. That's just what you want to do with the data version. And feature stores usually provide an API, not the API, but so-called feature views, 
called differently in different feature store for by different feature store providers. And um, these, I would say, almost must have at least two timestamps in there. One of them is when the feature was created, because it could have been created somewhere at some specific point in time. And when was this feature actually inputted into the feature store? So when did it appear in feature store? And feature store APIs also provide this called this thing called point-in-time joins or point-in-time feature retrievals. So you would usually, how you would do that, you would have a data set which indicates entity IDs. So entity could be a user, for example. And then for each of these entity IDs, you would also provide a timestamp. And that timestamp means return me a feature view of this entity, how it looked at this specific timestamp at this specific point in time in the feature store. And these features could be updated and with each update, there would be a new feature ingestion. I don't know how that should be called, but uh, maybe let's call it feature ingestion timestamp. And at any point in time, you can retrieve your features, how they looked at that point in time, even with different uh, timestamps for each specific entity. So I'll remind the question then. So where the actual data, where do you store it? Like, do you think as a feature store as also storage or it is abstraction on top of yes. a storage. So it is abstraction on top of a storage. And however, the underlying infrastructure and databases look like, it's up to the provider to say. It could be an open source provider, it could be a not open source, right? But however, that library, or it's probably a library usually implemented, that it defines what kind of icon storages you can use. Of course, naturally, most of the times you will see S3 or Google Cloud Storage for Batch, and you would see uh, either the NineWDB or Cassandra or Redis for online. Okay, and I want to ask you about an example, okay, to better understand this setup. Assuming that somebody would like to set up feature store. You mean the uh, in-house built feature store, right? No, no, no. I'm not recommending building feature stores uh, <laughs> neither, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are a few on the market and I heard they are pretty good. But I'm talking about setting things up because as you said, like feature store itself, like it is an abstraction on top of the storage. So let's say that we have a SaaS business with where and we have, of course, our internal database. Let's call it MySQL. We are using heap for product analytics. So in heap, we are having events where people are creating accounts, doing some actions, etc. And we use something because we'll be building lead scoring system. Okay. And so we have, again, MySQL of our SaaS. We have heap where we have events of actions of users. And we have some demographic data about companies who are registering to our SaaS coming from Clearbit through API. How I would, and now I want to install some feature store, how it would work. So first of all, it's very important to distinguish between the feature store ingestion and feature store serving parts, right? So feature store is a library or a framework on top of storage, but it has to have two sides, ingestion and server. So what, however, the feature store itself serves, not serves, but stores the features that it has already ingested. It's up to the feature store provider. Let's say we don't really care about that because it's abstracted for us. It will just work, right? So when it comes to ingesting from outside sources, as you mentioned, like databases or third-party APIs, this requires a data engineering flow. So it's less machine learning problem, more a data engineering problem. 
And it requires to ETL all of that data up until the feature store. So how it could look like if you want to do it in batch, like not real time. Of course, you could do real time here as well. So a batch would look most probably, you would do a database dump and you would naturally check its uh, the data's quality. You would do some ETL transformations. You would construct your entities in the pipeline. You would create most likely a data mart in your data warehouse and data mart is already curated uh, data prepared for consumption. It could be used by a BI tool to plot it, or you could mount a feature store on top of it. And feature store would have a batch ingest API, which would optionally on a given time period would extract the data from your mark, would put it inside of its internal storage system and make it available via the serving APIs. When it comes to your APIs, third-party APIs, you would also probably have a data engineering flow, which would continuously extract the data from the APIs. Probably since it's an API, it could be either real-time extraction or just batch uh, REST API gets. You would place that data most likely into Kafka, then push it downstream into the similar system like you did with your internal database and then perform the same actions, prepare a data mart, mount feature store on top of it and ingest the data. You could do all of it in real time. So you could connect a CDC stream to your internal database and push every transaction in your database into Kafka and do the data modeling in real time and ingest this data through Kafka into the feature store in real time. And you would even be able then to query the data from feature store serving APIs in real time. You could do the same probably with your third-party APIs because usually third-party APIs as well, they usually have a push API next to the REST API. So you would then use push, push API, which would push your data into your Kafka topics, same as the CDC stream from database, and you can serve the features in real time. And now I want to connect it with, with versioning. So I understand like with Kafka setup, I can get those features from feature store kind of real time, but when I would like to do then, let's say, point-in-time query, I would like to get data that I use a week ago to train the model, how it would work. So the feature stores, usually the feature stores, a good feature store has four APIs, batch ingest, real-time ingest for data marts or streams, log streams, and they also have two types of serving APIs, batch and uh, real-time. Data that comes into feature store is always replicated into both batch and real-time. Real-time only has the latest data, so the current state of your feature vectors. Batch, the API, not API, but also storage underneath, has all of historical data. So regardless, if you just in real-time or batch, you will also always have it in batch to query. And it's also usually done through CDC. So imagine you ingest your data into through a real-time ingestion API, probably in somewhere inside of a feature store system, a Flink job or a Spark job runs on top of that data, transforms it into features and uh, writes it into real-time storage, which could be Redis or DynamoDB. Then you can always mount a CDC connection from Dynamo or Redis into S3, and you will always have historical data. So it's nothing different if you just it in real-time or batch. Eventually it will be in both spaces. <laughs> So then to version the same thing. to version data set, I just need to know kind of a query to feature store and date. But additional problem here is that uh, usually you need to provide a NTID vector. So 
which entities do you want to query? Because feature stores don't work like databases. You can't run a complex query on top of your feature view to only get a subset of entities. You will need to provide feature store with entity lists of entities that you want to retrieve. So then these entity lists have to be constructed outside of feature store system. I would say that these might need version. <laughs> okay. And where would you store those? There are multiple ways as well. DVC could be used for this, but just storing them in S3 and pointing in your experiment tracker to this location, I would say is good enough. So from experiment, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am running products of function of experiment tracker. So I would need to version data sets with feature store. I would need to version on one hand entities that can be on S3, so pointer to S3 and query and times. Unless we don't change, unless we don't change. Oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. Because you need to get those entities from somewhere. So there are ways, for example, you could get those same entities from those data marts that are used to ingest into feature store as an example. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when it comes to, okay, coming back to MLOps stack and what we really need to add or ex what is this extension, right? Like, okay, what is missing? So we have a feature store, it solves a lot problems. We have experiment tracker. What about pipelining frameworks? How does it work? Like, let's say Airflow and feature store feature. Yeah, like how this should be integrated or we don't need Airflow if we have feature store. <laughs> we do, we do. So these are two completely different worlds. The pipelining systems, I wouldn't call Airflow a pipelining system. I will call Airflow a orchestrator. Pipelining systems would be probably something like uh, ZenML or SageMaker pipelines because uh, they, I don't think that they actually even contain cron invocation by themselves. I think they have to be invoked from somewhere else. Maybe ZenML is different, but eventually these systems can run anything, at least the Airflow. It can run, actually can run anything, it can run Java, it can run PHP, it can run Bash, it can run Python, right? So some of them, I would guess, integrates with uh, certain experiment tracking systems. You mentioned feature stores as well, right? So feature store is completely separate. They have their own separate APIs. If you schedule a job, a machine learning job or training, for example, you will have a step which will query the API. Okay, so one of the steps would be get from the, like, let's say that we want to train a model or retrain a model from kind of scratch, right? We need to get the particular snapshot of data. So it is one of the steps of, let's say, Airflow pipeline. This step would ask feature store for particular snapshot of data. And was it this batch uh, API in this context? Batch get API, yes. Historical batch get historical API because there's also two types of APIs for real time. You want to have both a single vector and a batch get. So let's say five vectors in the very low latency, right? So sometimes people get confused when you say you use batch get in two separate. This would be batch get historical. Data. Okay. Yeah. What can be the next step then? Like, so we have data somewhere. So first of all, we need to get a entity ID vector. You get it probably for from your data mart or raw data somewhere. You ask your feature store for list of the specific features for this entity list. You retrieve it. Then you naturally already save some metadata to the experiment tracker in the same step. Then uh, what I would do, not necessarily needed for every machine learning pipeline, I would do data profiling. So you got your data set, retrieve your data set. You want to save profile of it somewhere. Could be also experiment tracker or metadata storage as Neptune. You need that 
because let's say you run the same pipeline again, but on a different feature set, you want to be able to compare these two together against each other. Distribution of features in the data sets, right? Yeah, could be a different things, but mostly you could call a distribution of each feature in different data sets. Then if everything is fine, so if the quality is good, then you continue. If not, you can already short circuit here. This is a uh, error, you could say. Not error, but uh, alarm. <laughs> the next step naturally would be to take this data and train a model on it. You train a model on it, maybe do some hyperparameter optimization already here. You can branch out your task a little bit, save all of the experiment metadata. So when I say experiment metadata is mostly how, what, uh, where the experiment metrics, the term, not operational, but like, are you talking about things like accuracy? Like, yeah, but uh, what's the term, right? <laughs> training metrics, I would call it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, let's call them training metrics. So you save all of these training metrics for different runs so that you know which one is better. So you could naturally already, not necessarily stop here, but you need to output the model which was trained. But if you do hyperparameter optimization, there will be different models for each of the sets. So you need to compare them somehow. So I would say that if you are doing hyperparameter optimization, you could either choose automatically which one you want to save, or if you want to do some manual intersection, probably you will would have sub rules. So you would save, let's say, five best of 1,000 which you trained. And once you save five best ones, the metadata for them is saved into Neptune, for example. Then you go into the UI, you compare them against each other, choose the best ones, the, the best one, and then Naturally, there is another step since the model is already saved. It should already also be saved into a model registry, right? So it could be standalone model registry, it could be integrated, but it has to be, it needs to have one-to-one -one mapping to each experiment that is saved in the experiment track. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You choose the best one, you change, not necessarily change, but tag the best model, which corresponds to that experiment and you release it to protection. What happens later is also up to you, but usually you would hook that system to a deployment pipeline. So once you change the state to production, deployment pipeline kicks off and deploys the model to whatever type of model deployment you need, right? And talking about model deployment... Maybe I missed something. <laughs> yeah, go on. You know, it can make it always more complex. Like, anyway, thanks for going step-by-step step and walking us through it. When it comes to model deployment, I was thinking that like from a more abstract perspective, we can think as a, when we have a trained model and we want to evaluate a model on, okay, on example or set of examples, we can think about it as a feature, like execution of calculating features, more complex features in more sophisticated way, of course, depending on the model, but it is for me, conceptually to some extent similar how model so if it is similar do we need model serving components can we serve models through feature store or yeah so this concept is uh, still a little bit hard on my head but let's try and uh, <laughs> dig a little bit deeper so you say you're saying basically that uh, a model which you trained you would like to apply a certain feature set from a feature store on that model and the output of it would become a new feature set which could later be used for different different models or further the line in the 
Usually, however, the problem I see with this is that the model output, it doesn't go through a regular data engineering pipeline, which evaluates the quality of it, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't, nothing curates it because once you apply a machine learning model on set of features, you would then need additional curation pipeline to make it yet again available in the feature store. I would think it about it like this because yes, while uh, we can calculate drifts, but it's not only drifts, like uh, all of the null values. The model shouldn't produce, like, shouldn't produce. Yeah, yeah, but it shouldn't produce, but that's what the data sharing pipeline solved because nothing should output bad data, right? But uh, it does. <laughs> that, this is a very complicated idea, <laughs> but you could definitely provide a model API out of a feature store, but I would say that is to me is just another abstraction layer because that feature store provider will then have to manage models. It will have to deploy models. So you're basically just moving work from the one who trains the model and implements it to the provider of feature store. So it could be, but it is not what the market today offers. Is what would you say? No, no, no. I haven't heard about nowhere. To be honest, only from you. But it's a fascinating idea. So it would be yet another. Yeah, I'm just trying to understand what is, you know, what is the main difference between feature engineering being a Python function or Spark script? Spark script is deterministic. But model, like train model on a deterministic input also, like depends how you implement it, but also can produce deterministic. Yeah, but you would apply it on already unseen data, right? So Yeah, but Spark script applied on unseen data yes, is also, you can, yes, yeah, yes. it's also not deterministic, right. right? I still don't see what is the, why it shouldn't be like that, but for some reason it is not like that, right? I love the idea. I love the idea. I love the idea. And I know that definitely models are chained, right? They are chained together to produce a final result. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. With a setup where you have some of them I asked about in the example with SaaS, where we are building, let's say, lead scoring system. I said, okay, there is an API for going to Clearbit. Maybe Clearbit Insight also has models, right? So for me, it is not so distant idea. Anyway, I understand that it is not where market is today. Maybe there are reasons for it. But it is idea to not necessarily test, but to at least talk about, right? I think that it could have its place. <laughs> Yeah, because we've been thinking within Neptune when we have product discussions and we from time to time we talk about a future of this space, of envelope space. And I think that's like at the beginning we had few end-to-end platforms, big players are still on the market. Then we have a wave of many, many startups trying to do something small and call it a new category. So it was pretty problematic to follow what is doing what, what is needed, what is not needed, how it should all be integrated. And I think that we are getting to the phase where we are normalizing the space, clearing things up. That's why I'm looking what makes sense to be within one component where we really need to have two different components or more. And it was one of the items on we discussed. Shell model serving be part of feature store or not? or they're completely separate. The same or similar discussions we had among where we were comparing model registry and experiment tracker. I don't like the name experiment tracker because experiment sounds like something not production related. 
that's why we came up with another store, metadata store. <laughs> Sorry for another, <laughs> I'm not sure it's password, but another store on the market. But yeah, like we try to get out of this not production quality sentiments that comes with experiment tracker. Anyway, maybe one day I will be following your feeds. Maybe one day I will see feature model serving next to feature store. Maybe, maybe, but model serving and model deployment to me, for example, are two different things. Model deployment, I agree. But then again, if you want to serve a model and produce results from it, then it's also a deployment, also bundled into the same thing because you can't produce outputs from a server model. You need to deploy it. So the feature store... To some extent, yes. Like when you think about calculating of features via feature store, there is some level of computation that has to be happen somewhere, right? So we can also say, okay, it has to be triggered. It has to be executed. Are we calling feature deployments? But that's batch, right? So for batch, true. What about online, more like streaming? Ah, real time. Okay, so it also makes sense because you compute features as they come in, but you wouldn't want to probably have your model in the same script as well, right? <laughs> it is, I wouldn't recommend it, right? It is how you architect. But the difference is between the fact that you query real-time API on demand and you compute features as we come. So these two concepts are decoupled. Mm, so feature, oh, I understand. So there is no way to calculate features, let's call it lazily, in a lazy way. You always need to calculate them, even though maybe you won't need. That's a good idea. It probably could be implemented. So if you don't need a feature yet, but the data has already come in, only once you hit the REST API, only then you yeah, you calculate the feature. Exactly, lazy. But also probably improve efficiency and decrease costs eventually, right? So that's an idea to look into for feature store vendors. <laughs> Let's see how things will develop. Arimas, to sum up, maybe that's to close things because I learned a lot. So at least for me, it was very fruitful. <laughs> maybe we went sometimes too deep, but your posts are rather deeper. That's why I didn't want to talk in a shallow way. So if you can tell us, like for those who are not following you yet, where can we find you? It would be first question and follow-up question, maybe harder one, but for me, super interesting. You, I am following you, so I am learning stuff from you. But where do you get your knowledge? I think you are not following yourself so much. Yeah. So how do you do it? How you are keeping being on top of things? How do you manage it? Okay, first of all, you can find me on LinkedIn, naturally. Aurimas Getsunas, follow me there. I'm also on Twitter. I'm also on Mastodon now. And I have a newsletter. It's coined Swirl AI. You can find me there as well. I put everything that I write in LinkedIn on my newsletter every week. I do have plans to expand what I write about in the newsletter, but uh, that's how it currently is. And also, you will be able to probably find me next year on YouTube channel, my YouTube channel as well, but uh, that's for the future. And when it comes to learning... You will be on our YouTube channel for <laughs> sure with this episode, so there will be even more <laughs> yeah. of you on YouTube. So how I learn. So I definitely do follow a lot of other influencers, not only influencers, just the people who speak about MLOps. And I definitely read the blog posts, including Neptune AI's blog posts, which are great, by the way. I do read a lot of technical books. I'll make it clear. So I would say that it's not that easy to know many things in that depth. So I also sometimes feel that I plateau at some level. 
even I only read tutorials and our people talking about so that, so I read books. So I read books about Kubeflow, I read books about uh, Kafka, Cassandra, I read books about Airflow specifically, and not one, but uh, several <laughs> per topic. I also read uh, lots of books on Kubernetes, for example. So it is interesting. I was always skeptical about those books because I felt that like about book, about particular technology, mm -hmm. especially when it pertains to particular version, because I felt that it would be outdated. You need to choose correct technology. So definitely I read the newest releases because, for example, for Kafka, they are coming out every year or two, new release of a book, which covers the latest ones. But I choose the technologies which are almost fundamental for the practice. For example, Kafka is definitely fundamental. All of the other... So give us five or maybe three for like in the context of MLOps engineers, guys who want to do this job. What would be top three? So for MLOps engineering specifically, it's a little bit more complicated. So five. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, usually it's easier to find fundamental things in data engineering because these are distributed technologies, etc. So you need to know about those. For MLOps, definitely designing machine learning systems by Tribune. It really was released this year. So it covers the life cycle of machine learning operations pretty well. I would also include Joe Race's book called Fundamentals of Data Engineering. Even though it's about data engineering, but these two books coupled together cover the entire life cycle of data from raw till deployment, I would say. Read these two books as a beginner, 100%, and then dig deeper. When I say dig deeper, then you probably, you should read at least one book about the statistics that can go into machine learning, but I don't really have a very good recommendation for this. Yeah, MLOps is a little bit harder compared to data engineering. <laughs> There are no that, not that many books around that topic. So that's why I'm really glad seeing them popping out in the recent years because it's only... Any plans for you to write a book? Uh, I was thinking about it, <laughs> but it takes a lot of time. And I think that return on investment is great when you think that people read it, but uh, it's not true because I want, don't want to say that not that many people read these kinds of books, but it's definitely a limited amount of people when compared to, for example, just putting the knowledge online and reaching hundreds of thousands of people, right? So I do have plans eventually, but... Uh... <laughs> so Rimas, I'm keeping my finger crossed for you. I think we'll be meeting from time to time in the space. Thanks for today. Yeah. We are in touch. Thanks, man. Thank you. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Yeah.